Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Brian Wolfmuller's Has American Christianity Failed? We've been on a two-week break, but it feels like to me the snap of a finger, the blink of an eye, and here we are again. So I'm glad to be with you. We're going to be picking up um, on chapter 7, the how of good works. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so um, one thing to do very quickly, make sure that we finish the section on the Lord's Supper. I think we did. And that was part of the chapter, um, Go Play Outside, which really introduced uh, the sacraments to us, baptism, and then uh, absolution, and then the Lord's Supper. All of these things being outside of us, that's the point of Go Play Outside, and showing us God's attitude toward us completely independent of the inner machinations of our minds, of our souls, etc. Now, what we're going to see is that good works flow from these external things. So, they don't come and bubble up out of us naturally, uh, nor like as if, as if it was just simply us doing the doing, but rather as God's gracious attitude toward us in Christ Jesus, the full forgiveness of sins, all, His Holy Spirit and all His graces, come into us from outside, from the means of grace, then as God's love has its way with us, so we begin to love one another and and love God. And so um, we love because he first loved us. Hmm? He is the vine, we are the branches. Apart from him we can do nothing, but in him will bear abundant fruit. And so you can see how good works doesn't is very connected with all of this, organically connected with all of this. Um, and there's nothing antithetical to grace and good works. Um, rather, these are two parts of a singular whole. So far, so good? All right. Anything uh, rattling around as a remainder from the uh, sacrament chapter? Other than if you don't show love. I mean, not doing it right, huh? Yeah, <laughs> I think you just summarized the epistle of First John. Yeah, if yeah. you if you don't love, you're not doing it right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so so when I'm not loving, I can say, "Oh, good, I have a long way to go," or, "Oh, it's not working." Yeah, right. And I this is, probably isn't the time or the place to launch off into this, but of course we've got many misconceptions about what love is, and we often here in the West, twenty uh, first century, mistake. Um, love or use that word and what we really mean are like romantic tenets and i don't mean like necessarily uh what you find in the shopping aisle with the valentine's day cards i just mean these ideals of emotion and emotional driven love um Emotion is a component but there are many components to love and sometimes the expression of love is done where you have the opposite emotion. Um, you know, you can think of, uh, you can think of many, many vocational duties. Uh, your child screams out for the third time in a row and it's 2 a.m. Do you feel like getting up? Are you filled with warm and fuzzies? It's the most amazing experience ever. You can't wait to write poetry about it in the morning. No, hardly. Um, but you get up and you do your duty because that's love. Ah, and you couldn't do otherwise because that's love. Even when your, your flesh is crying out against you, you know, I need sleep. I need to go back to bed. You still do it, right? So love can be um, completely contrary to our feelings as well. So with that out of the way, right, we want to learn how God loves and begin to emulate his love in our life. And the best way, of course, we can do that is in this is love, not that we have loved him, but that he has loved us, that he has given his son as the propitiation for our sins. So we learn love by learning the cross. We learn the shape and way of God's love, and then we let that 
peculiar, particular New Testament love. Remember the new commandment I give you that you love one another? And you go, well, I thought that was the essence of the law given 1,500 years earlier by Moses. In what sense is it new? Uh, that you love one another as I have loved you. It's a Christological, Christiform, cruciform reality. On this New Testament love. And so we are ever students of that love, we're ever recipients of that love, and then we want that love of God in Christ Jesus to have its way with us such that we love others precisely in the way that he loves us. And that, I mean, is just yet another angle on justification and sanctification. Remember those two categories? When we look at the Christian life as a whole, it consists of these two categories, justification um, where we are justified before God completely apart from works or merit. Indeed, so much so that he elects us before the foundation of the world. How many, how many works or, or merits did you have before you were born that God should choose you? How many works or merits did you have before the foundation of the world that God should choose you? You see the point? So God has already chosen you in Christ Jesus completely and entirely apart from any works or merit. That's justification. He sent his son to die for you and make you righteous by his blood. That's justification. Okay. Now, that has its fruit, and its fruit we call sanctification. That's the giving of the Holy Spirit, the regeneration of our hearts, the making of a new creation. And then that new creation with its, within us, that with its new impulses, attitudes, desires, I mean, the fact that we lament our sinful condition, we lament that the good we want to do, we don't do, and the evil we wish we could avoid doing, we still end up doing. That desire within us is proof of the Holy Spirit and proof of the regeneration that God has made us new. So, in a in an odd kind of way, the fact that we are all struggling, uh, a la Romans 7, is proof that the Holy Spirit is at work within us. Yeah, please. So, can you explain or put suffering, you know, through the love and faith and hope into into it, mm-hmm. <laughs> into all this? Because I think suffering is the very main thing that keeps us away from thinking or or or. or have certainty of mm. faith, love, and hope. Mm, yeah. Suffering's a great gambit. It's maybe the biggest bet there is. So, so maybe the devil's greatest tool is suffering. Because he can get, convince people through the problem of suffering that there's no God or God isn't good. And then he can convince you through your own personal sufferings that God doesn't love you or maybe he loves you but he doesn't like you. And, um, that maybe, maybe he's destined and doomed you to a hellish life only to be followed up by hell itself. And so suffering is, to be sure, the tool of the devil. But why is it like the riskiest bet you can make? Because there's actually no tool more likely to bring you to God. This is what C.S. Lewis sees. Um, well, both, both C.S. Lewis and Martin Luther standing on the shoulders even of others before them, Augustine, for example, see this dynamic. Um, C.S. Lewis says of suffering that it's God's megaphone. It's the very thing God's most likely to use to bring you to him, which is quite paradoxical. And Luther, too, in his own way, says the people who are, who are closest to hating God or who, or who hate, yeah, people who hate God most vehemently are the closest to him, the closest to being converted, he means. Um, why? Because you're actually seeing God via his law properly and accurately. Like the worst spiritual state you can be in is 
going out and jumping in your BMW and getting your third latte and heading off to get your nails done and your manicure and your and then you retire to your beach house at the end of the day and your personal masseuse rubs your back and you think to your and then you go to bed and you sleep blessed 12 hours and you get up and repeat you just wonder like why all the plebs in this life you know are having such a hard time um that's uh <laughs> That's, that's maybe the worst spiritual state a person could possibly be in. And it's the, it's the most hopeless. Because what are you going to say? You, you need God. Seems like I don't. Or seems like God's doing pretty good with me as it is. There's absolutely no way to reach that person. And you'll also find, of course, anecdotally, you, you know this personally too, that in the best of times, your spiritual life is frequently at the worst of times. Why, why do you pray when everything's going Great, etc. So that's a that's a way and, and an insight for us to think too, um, in terms of this idea of suffering and the imposition of suffering and who's doing it and for what purposes. Satan's doing it to drive us away from God. God is allowing it to drive us to Him, and it's one of the biggest bets and gambles, so to speak, over men's souls. Um, now, the way of the way of of love and suffering, we are in a profound need of renovation and renovating this understanding in our midst. Because everywhere I go, pastorally, I see that we don't understand suffering in a way that we can build each other up. You have to understand it. You can shore yourself up so much with your own understanding, but we need to be able to shore each other up. Because when you're suffering, when you're being crushed under the weight, you need brothers and sisters in Christ to be able to help you effectively. So <clears throat> one of the one of sort of the foundational points of recovering this is to view suffering and love as one. Remember, love one another as I have loved you, and we can see the source of our love is going to be Christ's love for us. But and if that source is going to be the cross, then then we need to learn the cross. It's kind of it's kind of an irony that many Many people who boast about knowing the cross most of all uh, tend to know it least of all when it comes to its actual essence. Because its essence is love. And I think you can see this, I'm going to do just a short shrift on it to move to the point we're trying to get to. And that is, um, when Christ is on the cross, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God has forsaken him, turned his back on him, because he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. But what does is, what is Jesus do? He cries out, My God, my God. And with his final triumphant shout um, before uh, dying, he commends his spirit into his Father's hands. Here is, here is God completely and totally turning his back on Jesus in a way that he's never completely and totally turned his back on you. And how does Jesus love him? perfectly, as if there were no problem at all. Just crying out to him, loving him, commending his spirit into his hands, etc. Okay, that's the vertical. What about the horizontal? What is, what is humanity doing? Well, his own have received him not. Indeed, they're putting him to death, as well as the Gentiles. You have Jew and Gentile alike, culpable at the crucifixion. The whole of humanity crucifying him, doing the worst thing you could possibly do to a human being. And in, uh, in that culture, in that time, crucifixion was thought to be the single most torturous death, um, especially flogging and then crucif crucifixion. It was the capital punishment of all punishments. It was the most cruel thing you could endure at that time in the world. And that's what humanity, Jew and Gentile, were doing to Jesus. And again, I won't go into the fullness of this meditation, but everything from the physical suffering to the psychological suffering, the shame, the mockery, to the spiritual suffering of um, being an innocent man and being condemned as guilty. But what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Perfect love for man. Now, what does this tell us? Well, when you look to the heart of what Christ would refer to as the Christian life or following him, it is always what? Take up your cross. 
God, follow me. Now, what we need to regain is the sense that the cross that you carry is simultaneously your altar of love. That cross was transformed by Christ from an instrument of death and torture into an altar of love, whereby he made perfect worship and sacrifice uh, to God, loving God perfectly and loving man perfectly, even while these forsook him and hated him. And we would all say there's no higher worship in the history of humanity. All other worship, frankly, is subsumed underneath that worship of Christ at the altar of his cross. When he's saying, take up your cross, he's not just saying, hey, um, you know, it's going to get real bad. He's, he's teaching us a meaning of suffering and a way to suffer, um, to receive even this from your father's hand. Don't cheat yourself out of it by saying, well, this is the devil and I've got to somehow like align myself with God against this. Yeah, but even, I mean, this is the book of Job and, didn't God allow the devil to afflict you? Didn't God allow man to afflict you? Didn't God allow this to befall you? So in that sense, don't let God off the hook because you're just going to cheapen your experience. Let the cross and affliction come as if from the hand of God and love him anyway. Everyone loves him when he's giving, right? The Lord gives. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And what about when he's taking away? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Now, we're still not there. Can you say, blessed be the name of the Lord in the midst of your cross and your affliction? Now, what you're doing is you're taking that cross and affliction and making an opportunity to love God, to remain faithful to him, to bear its impossible weight and load and cry out, my God, my God, and then upon death to commend yourself into his Hands. That's what Christ is inviting us to. And then as others afflict us cruelly, we'll never be afflicted no matter who we are, the way Christ was afflicted. Um, we'll never be innocent the way he was innocent. But he's teaching us there how to love our fellow man as well. To pray for them and to not let our hearts turn cold against them. Um, there's rebuke to be had from our lips, to be sure. That's a loving thing to do. There's comfort to be had from our lips. That's a loving thing to do in service of our neighbor but most of all to view our relationship to our neighbor in light of our relationship to God. These are afflicting me. God, forgive them. You see the transformation. Like These are afflicting me. That's horizontal transformation to God, forgive them. Um, by his conduct and by his very few words from the cross, uh, Christ converts the one of the thieves next to him more likely one of the insurrectionists next to him. And um, that thief who had previously mocked him and ridiculed him along with the others now come now is converted and comes to his defense and, and says those famous words, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus is poised and prepared to speak the gospel. He's patiently waited, even while that man was mocking him. And now the second that man turns to him in repentance, immediately the gospel is on his lips. So Christ is teaching us that, and see, I think what's, not only is this important because we're not perceiving suffering as the calling that it actually is. It's the calling to love God when God is unlovable. We shouldn't get all weirded out when Luther and so many other church fathers talk about hating God because they're actually just being honest about something that God does. God creates a promise and then attacks that promise. God says, I love you, you're my child for all eternity, and then he dumps a bucket of hell on you. Okay, that's what he does. Now, he's got reason and rationale for that. He's not sadistic. How else do you grow and train and mature someone than by exercising their faith. And that's the language that came out of the Reformation, the exercising of faith, so that faith grows stronger. But it is, it is fine to say like, like, well, I hate what God is doing to me. And in that sense, like, I hate, I find myself hating God. I can't help that. But he is still my God. He is still my Father. I know that even though I, I hate this and I hate the way he seems to me, that he is working even this for my good. And because of who Christ is, his love for me, his perfect forgiveness for me, his sacrifice for me, and him as template. Now I'm freed 
to see my own suffering as template and as offering and as sacrifice. Remember what St. Paul says is part of our royal priesthood. Our priestly duty is baptized children of God, and that's to um, offer ourselves as living sacrifices. I think that's Romans 12. Do you, have you ever paused and thought how weird that is? The heck is a living sacrifice? Sacrifice, by definition, is to kill something, to end its life. And what would you say a living sacrifice is? I mean, if you want to think in a base sort of way about it, it would be to torture your sacrificial victim. It would be to not end their suffering. So we are called by the New Testament to make our bodies living sacrifices. Now, what's interesting about that, too, is... um, See if I can remember. Uh, it's in one of the Psalms, and it comes into one of our daily service prayers. I just haven't prayed it in a long time, so it's gotten rusty. But it's this idea that, um, oh yeah, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Do you remember that? Have you run across it in the daily prayer offices? Um, I think the family prayers. Anyway, it's, it's a quotation of a psalm. And you think, well, what on earth does that have to do with us as New Testament people? And the answer is absolutely everything. This is why we need a renaissance and a renovation of all of this in our thinking. Um, in the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. In the morning, when you sit down and have your cup of coffee or get in the shower or whatever it is you do, when you start thinking about the day, start thinking in these terms. I'm preparing a sacrifice for you. Guess who the sacrifice is? Me. Yeah, me. So what, and sometimes that's quite passive. Maybe my, maybe because I've got a chronic illness or I'm going through an extreme treatment or something like that, maybe my sacrifice is literally just to keep the faith while enduring this affliction. Maybe it's entirely passive in that sense, right? I'm simply going to suffer what comes today and do so in love toward God, giving him thanks and praise. I, we are, as Americans think only in terms of um, what is uh, practical and pragmatic and, and then effective. And we've totally lost this idea that is not praising God worthy in and of itself, even if nobody else sees. In fact, Jesus says there's a unique preciousness and pricelessness to it if no one does see. Because it's done in secret unto your Father alone, and he who sees in secret will reward. Remember that? So this idea that you can be holed up in a nursing home with nobody visiting you and in a wretched state and be offering worship after the template and model of Christ on the cross. That's what's given to us. That's what the vocation and calling of suffering is. It's the most... Even if you were doing good works, like let's, you know, you're going about your, your vocations, and then God heaps on a ton of suffering, and you keep doing those good works. Greater or lesser value? Greater. And we've been so scared as Lutherans, because we've misinterpreted Luther on this point, but we've been so scared as Lutherans to say that our good works have anything to do with God. Say, you'll find no such aversion in the New Testament. You'll find, you'll find all the apostles saying, seek out what pleases God. Do that which pleases Him. Um, do you love me? Then go do this for me. Feed my sheep or whatever the case may be. Um, we make it our aim always to please Him. And so Luther's got this famous saying where God doesn't need your good works, your neighbor does. Now, if you're thinking like a Roman Catholic, this is a glorious statement. Okay. If you're thinking like a Roman Catholic, oh, I've got to do my good works, otherwise God's not going to like me very much. Okay, Then somebody comes along and says, God doesn't need your good works, your neighbor does. You go, right, my standing with God, my justification doesn't depend upon my good works. God be praised. Now I'm, my conscience is freed and I can just go do good. So you can see the value of this statement. But when you're not in a legalistic Roman Catholic 16th century context, but rather in a completely lawless 21st century Western American context, it rings a little different. And it actually can can distort our thinking. Because it can be like this. 
God doesn't care what you do or don't do, so just whatever. Serve your neighbor if you have opportunity. And that, and that in our context, those words can ring that way, even though Luther would never intend them that way. So what we need to recover is this really biblical teaching that everything we do, we're doing as service to God. This is what sets us free in our culture because in our culture it's like, well, um, you know, my, my husband's by, been ruined by romanticism and, um, he's just, you know, he's practically a girlfriend. Or my wife's been worried, uh, ruined by uh, feminism. She's practically a rival. Uh, my kids have been ruined by culture, a culture of just nothing but disrespect and, and disobedience. Uh, the whole culture and world, the state and the church, have been ruined in their fat laxity. And you can go on. But you, but what, what those kinds of observations will get you to do is be like, well, my neighbor isn't worth it or worthy of it. Um, you know, if you're still working, think about your boss. Is, is he worthy or she worthy of your efforts? What about your coworkers at your benefit? So we get, we get caught in this trap of like, it's actually kind of the satanic rule. Do unto others as they do unto you. You guys have to know your Satanism better. Do unto, this is the satanic rule. Um, inversion of the golden rule. Do unto others as they do unto you. And so the world ends up getting what? Perpetually crappier and crappier. <laughs> yes, I do a crappy job for you. You do a crappy job for me. I return the favor. And it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse until all of culture degrades, which is we're starting to see the bottom right now. I think we're starting to scrape against it. Um, what we need to recover is this idea that respectfully, I'm not serving you. I'm serving God. That's why I'm serving you. Respectfully, my service to you has nothing to do with whether you're worthy of it or not. It's because God is worthy, and he's called me to love and serve you. That's why I'm doing it. And maybe I can say, hey, I do love you. I do see merit. You are worthy and worth it. But I'm going to love you even beyond that because that's how God has loved me. You see, so this entire idea of do, of all our lives being lived as lives before God transforms and changes the entire landscape, changes suffering, changes love, changes vocation, and instantly connects us with the cross, instantly connects us with God's love for us as the centerpiece of all of this. So this is the, sorry, I think you asked one question, a simple <laughs> question, 30 minutes ago, and here we are. You'll have to forgive me, um, but... But I think that this is what we especially need a renaissance and we need to recapture the amazing beauty that God sets before us. Um, this all gets trashed because it's like, well, that's, or talk about this in a minute, that's pietism or that's moralism or that's self-improvement. Well, no, it's not any of those things. And we might even agree that all those things are errors. Um, we're called to a deeper regenerative reality, a deeper baptismal reality as new creatures living in a new world where God is present tense, making all things new with a new commandment to love with a new shape and form of that commandment. You see how everything's new? We can leave the moralism and the pietism and all the other stuff behind us. And we can also ignore when people who don't understand charge us with these things because our belief uh, in, and our teaching in these things is grounded in the scriptures, as we shall uh, soon see. Okay, Finn, that's the end of my sermon. <laughs> thank, thank you for attending my TED Talk, as they say. <laughs> yeah, please. Quick question in that context. Uh, I grew up in as a little boy in a home that had two small plaques on the wall. One of them said, uh, God is love. And uh, that impacted me in the way that I, I've, I've learned or thought that the only source of love in the cosmos is God and that I don't have the capacity to love others unless God is working through and in me and changing my, the mm -hmm. desires of my heart. Mm -hmm. uh, as we talk about good works and we go into this, is that a right perspective that it's only God's love working through me that uh, I'm able to be this living sacrifice mm -hmm. and serve others? 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, there, there is a sense, we're going to get into the details. We're going to get into the technicalities and do a little, you know, uh, like get under the microscope here. And so we can get under the microscope and actually see a change that we do start to work with God and participate with God after conversion, after this regeneration. But yet the general sense of it is he is love and his love is having its way with us. That means justification and sanctification. We can flesh that out and parse that out and get very detailed. But just at the 40,000-foot view, this is all what God is doing to us, in us, through us. And to him be glory for all of it. Yeah, I think you can get a glimpse here, too. Remember how strange it is in John's Gospel, you've noticed this, that Jesus is always referring to his suffering as his glory. And I think this gives you an interesting insight, not just an exegetical insight, but an actual comp- uh, comprehension of what, he, what he's talking about when you realize that precisely by, by loving as the affliction comes, God is glorifying it. He is heightening, strengthening, refining, showing that love for what it actually is and increasing it. Unto, unto glory, to where we look at the sacrifice of, the, of Jesus on the cross and his love for God and man through that, and we go, there's no greater glory. There's no greater accomplishment. There's not a single thing that anyone could do in the face of anything that is as great as that. And that's, that's his glory. But the glory and the affliction are one. You know, what if Christ just came and did his ministry, never really suffered, never really did anything, and then just suddenly ascended up into heaven? You go, well, that might have been, that must have been nice. <laughs> he didn't have to suffer. He didn't have to face anything. He was good, but there was no suffering. And, and here I think you can get an insight into um, the way the Bible speaks sometimes that we're not used to thinking in these categories, so it hangs us up. But where he like, where Christ is said to learn through suffering or learn through obedience, what we can see here is like a transition from glory without duress, just doing what's right, versus doing what's right under extreme duress, that glory is magnified and amplified. Does that make sense? This is where it's not trite at all when your pastor says to you that if God God, if God if did not love you, he would not have laid this upon you. Because God is laying this particular cross or that particular suffering upon you in order to glorify you, in order to make your faith in him, your love for him, shine even more brightly unto the ages of ages, unto an eternal blossoming forth. So it's not just lip service when your pastor says to you, God only lays this kind of affliction upon those whom he loves deeply. And of course, we can look again. We are this entire this entire theology is based on nothing but the cross. How much does the everlasting Father love the everlasting Son? It's incomprehensible. Thus, how great the suffering, and why the suffering? Because of masochism? No, because of a father's love for a son that the son will conquer that suffering. This is the language of Isaiah, where it is not enough for you that you would merely save the Jews. I want you to save the whole world. Can you hear the Father? I mean, in a wonderful, wonderful, beautiful way, challenging the Son. I'm not going to lay this small cross on you, which would be a huge cross to any one of us, but this small cross on you of just dying for the Jews. I'm going to lay this enormous cross on you that you would die for the sins of the entire world, past, present, future, all of it. I know you can do it. So that cross comes from God. And um, Now, when you're in it, it's very difficult to, rec- to recognize all these things. You almost can't minister to yourself. That's why we need a re- renaissance, why everybody needs a pastor, but we all need a church, and we all need brothers and sisters in Christ. Because even as a pastor, when the afflictions are coming upon you, trust me, I'm not walking three feet up in the air going, oh yes, I see now how God is loving me and glorifying me. No, I'm squashed under the hand of God just like everyone else, needing that word of God 
and needing um, that Christian and pastoral encouragement that the church and the ministry can give. So I see Satan is trying to thwart us with... Uh, but yeah, that's that's why we need a renaissance, because when you're the one under affliction, I mean, think of this, think of this. Even the Son of God himself, the garden experience was so intense, the beginning of his passion was so intense, that not only is he sweating as great drops of blood, he's having this extreme biological uh, reaction to the duress he's under, but he's under such great duress that God sends an angel to minister to him. Now, if if that if even Christ needs an angel, how much more do we need one another? And do we need a community? And do we need pastors? And do we need people to lift us up? So we need to learn this theology also, not only for the sake of God, not only for the sake of ourselves, but then for the sake of our neighbors so we can minister to them when they're being afflicted. I see a hand in the back. So I was um, recently building a fire in a fire pit and moving uh, large pieces of wood into the pit. And as I grabbed this wood, I I really felt the how rugged and coarse this was. And it made me reflect very deeply on Christ when he embraced his cross mm-hmm. and just how, how real and earthy and authentic, genuine and physical that love is. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if you ever had an experience like that that made you think along those lines, but it was it was powerful to to just think on that. You know, just feeling the wood and just being like, "Wow, this mm-hmm. this is what the cross must have felt like." You know, this unfinished, rugged, coarse thing. Yeah, yeah, it's a great reminder. Um, you know, the angels are incorporeal; they don't have bodies. They're their offering, their praise to God, their daily sacrifice is going to be very different than ours. Human sacrifice, glory, and praise is almost always physical in some way, shape, or form because we're physical beings and that's our domain. So I love that. Those things that draw us out of our heads and out of this faux spiritual, you know, plane we all think we float around on and they draw us down and say, no, here, in your flesh and your sufferings here in this bread and this wine and this baptismal water. And, um, you know, it's very easy to love the church, much more challenging to love individual Christians. <laughs> so, um, to look around us in our, in our class and our pews and our, in our church and love people in their bodies as they are. Um, yeah, these are the, you're, you're drawing our attention to exactly where it needs to be, down, earthly, physical. This is where our priesthood is in and through these things. And it's, it's why, you know, it, it's become a little bit of a cliche, but, uh, but why Luther and so many others, you know, just they speak and praise of like, I think it was even in our reading today, like the young girl who, you know, cares for the infant or something like that. Did you catch that line? I can't remember what it was. But that's, but there's glory in that. There's glory. I use the analogy of, or not the analogy, the example of the baby crying out in the middle of the night. There's a glory. You have to physically get up. And it's terrible. Your whole body's screaming against you. And you go do it. This is the love. This is the sacrifice. This is the living sacrifice. Um, this is the glory. And it's in physical stuff. It's in earthly stuff. And you don't have to go out looking for it and inventing it. You know, you don't have to climb some mountain, as if we had those around here. Um, you don't have to climb some mountain and sit lotus style, you know, trying to commune everywhere and nowhere to like get in contact with God and have a meaningful spiritual existence. All you have to do is wake up and say, what are my tasks? What are my duties today? What are my vocations? What has God called me to as a, you know, in my case, as a husband, a father, a, a pastor, you know? What are my, as citizen, what are my duties today? And how am I going to accomplish those? Those are always very physical. That's what God calls us to. And that also is our unique worship as human beings. Angels would love to do what we do, but they can't. Only we can. That's how we've been made and constituted. Um, so God has created us, uh, different for different praise and different glory and different experience as he uh, manifests that within us. 
Ultimately, he's, conform, uh, he's conforming our love into his own love. And that's the, that's the beauty of it, is it's not just as if God is sitting up, up there in the, in the heavens as some like completely unknowable, impenetrable. I mean, he's all those things, but that's not how he desires to relate to us. It doesn't do us any good as creatures to interface with him on that basis of the utterly transcendent. You know, but rather, he shows and reveals himself to us as father. And in a story of like Abraham and Isaac, you can imagine the pathos of the father sacrificing his son. So he invites us into his own pathos, the way that he loves and is willing to give that which is most priceless to him. The father's, like for the father to lay down his life would be an easy thing. For the father to give his son is infinitely harder. And then for the son to simply accept that is also hard because it requires a special humiliation because the most precious thing to him is his father. And so um, he has to humble himself to do his father's will. So, um, so there's this great love and this fatherly outpouring of love. And that is really ultimately what God is doing, like father, like son, um, to use the slogan, God is ultimately teaching us to love as he loves. And that precisely is the honor and glory too. As we're being conformed into the image of, of Jesus, his son, we're also, beca- we're also being conformed to the image of the father because the son is the image of the father. And so if we're conformed into Christ, you can get the algebra here. We're also conformed into the image of the father. We are becoming as he is and reflecting his glory in our own, through our own unique personalities and vocations and time and place. So that's the whole point of it too, is God's not do, God's not alien. He's not like sitting up here going like, well, you all need to conform and become this way because I'm worthy of it. So get, you know, get to work providing, uh, appropriate sacrifice for me here, minions. That's not God. That's, that's kind of a very earthly view of religion. That's not God. And sometimes you hear like, um, certain American denominations talking about like, well, God's just doing that for his glory, you know, as if God was every bit as self-centered and vain as we are. Ah, yeah, there's not a lot of places where the scriptures speak that way. And I, I would say certainly not in the deeper sense. What God, what God is, is father. And he loves us so dearly that he actually wants us to become as he is. He wants to glorify us and lift us up. And the way he does that is precisely by humbling us. That's the counterintuitive way that God always works. He humbles that he might exalt. And that's the process right now. That's our glory right now. Our glory is our suffering because by humiliating us, he's going to exalt us. And by humiliate, I mean humble. There's just not a word for that. So by humbling us, he's going to exalt us. That's the whole point. So it's all glory. And it's all that we might be uh, more like him and share with him and the things that he loves for all eternity. Okay, well, um, sorry again. But let's, uh, I think that this is actually good. I don't know. I think it's good to do a little bit of background before we just jump into a chapter called Good Works. It's, um, it's good for us to get some kind of deeper, richer understanding of uh, where we are in this world. Um, what God has given us, what the devil's trying to take away from us, etc. So, jumping into um, the text at page 141 in Wolf Mueller's text, the how of good works. Uh, this is such a beautiful statement, Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship. In the first place, we're God's good work. And probably, I mean, obviously that's true in the creation sense, but even here, more poignantly, in the sense that we're a new creation, so as Christians, we are his workmanship. Thus, the next clause, created in Christ Jesus. I mean, just stop and take that in. This is like filet mignon. This is like, you know, the most decadent chocolate you've ever experienced. This is the, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Don't let your mind go all the way back to Genesis. Let your mind go to your baptism. When you are baptized into Christ, you become a new creation in Christ Jesus. We are really lacking this sense of newness and freshness as well, but a verse like Ephesians 2 can show you how the New Testament is thinking, always in a, in a very forward and new sense. 
We are new workmanship. We are newly created in Christ Jesus, and that for good works. So created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Um, you can, I don't, I don't really care when, when this beforehand is, before we were baptized, before the foundation of the world. It's probably all the same when we're talking about God, all right, who's outside of time and space. But the point being that God has prepared good works for us to do. Now, don't fall into this trap of like, okay, well, that means he's got X amount of good works that I'm supposed to do. I bet you I'm at like 17%. That's an F. So. <laughs> <laughs> Don't fall into that trap. That's um that's a very earthly fallen way to think. That's not the point. The point is that God has indeed prepared good works. We might even say um that includes his vocation and our various stations of life in which we do good works. The uh the Con- Lutheran confessions have this glorious thing that God and they do they do um in the confessions they take this sense that God before the foundation of the world not only decided to create you but decided um exactly what sufferings and afflictions he would allow and bring upon you in order to conform you into everlasting glory so that what what's so comforting about that is that your sufferings aren't an accident in some ways, they're contoured specifically for your personality. That can suck to hear. <laughs> Trust me. Because uh, <laughs> um, I've heard it, uh, and myself. And, and you just go, crap, well, why this? And first of all, if it wasn't this, it'd be something else. And if it wasn't anything else, you'd be perfectly happy. And that'd rather be a proof that God doesn't love you, <laughs> that God's fed up with you. This is where James goes, you know, it, it, like, I had people get really upset with me for preaching this. I was like, it's James. He says, um, he's fattening them. Uh, like cattle for the slaughter. You, know, you don't want to be that way. So, yeah, so there's this, um, there's this sense in which we, uh, there's great comfort in knowing that the things that befall us aren't accidental. And very often we struggle so immensely with them precisely because they were designed for us. God who made us, God who knows precisely the ways in which we're fallen, we can do the whole nature nurture thing. He knows our genetics and whatever propensities lie therein. He knows the way we were raised and the particular struggles therein. Um, God knows all these things, and it's all his recipe that he's prepared beforehand in order to bring you to a glory that you couldn't possibly imagine. And in fact, if you were asked, you know, would you like this? Every last one of us would be like, nope. Um, but that's the joy of what God is doing, is that it's we don't ask for these crosses. We would never want these particular crosses. Those are the ones he lays upon us because through these very things, he's working the greatest possible glory in us and for us. So a verse like this really helps us understand that God prepares these things beforehand. They're part of his overarching creative design. Nothing that befalls you befalls you by accident. It is all meant to be used by God uh, in finality. And um, so just to look at this again, this it's all creative. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. To love him and love neighbor despite affliction, despite all the challenges of the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh. All right, um, that's Ephesians 2. Now, um, what Wolf Mueller does in the first page is a lot of what I've tried to do in my own words here, and that's just set Jesus and his cross at the center of the talk about good works. You know, so often in American Christianity, it's like this. It's like, okay, well, what Jesus has done for you, good. Now you believe in Jesus, you've prayed the sinner's prayer, you've gotten baptized, whatever. Okay, no more Jesus for you. Now get busy. Now Christianity is no longer about Christ. It's now about the Christian. And so that's really Wolf Mueller's critique. I, of course, of will bore you again with my the radio sermon that I heard because it's just so stereotypically true. Like the gospel is for unbelievers. Once you're a believer, it's back to the law. It's back to the treadmill of get busy. So this is what we find in American evangelicalism all around us. Now, uh, so it's not about Christ. It's about the Christian. If that's one error, what do you think the opposite error is? It's about Christ entirely and not the Christian. How does that manifest? 
Uh, I'm weak on good works and I don't care. I have no desire to do good works. Good works are for people who don't get the gospel. Um, and yeah, all kinds of ridiculous things where if you just like crack the New Testament, you go, that can't possibly be right. But then of course, if you really believe that that's true, you crack the New Testament, you reinterpret it all according to your theology. So these are the two, these are the two great errors we face. American Christianity pushes Christ off to the side and puts the Christian there, but it's an equally bad response to push the Christian entirely off to the side and just put Christ there as if we weren't, in fact, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. And see how these are just two opposite errors. We're going to avoid all of those. We're going to keep the emphasis on Christ, that's right, um, but in such a way that our his redemption of us and our growth and good works are one and the same reality. We're not going to separate the, the question of good works from Christ and his cross. Um, as I've tried to lay the groundwork for uh, in this class. Okay, so, um, oh yeah, and in Lutheranism this hits really hard too, because we had this whole thing. So Lutheranism went through some various phases, kind of historical phases. I'm going to do a really terrible job. <laughs> I'm going to try to do it like under a minute. So Lutheranism... Um, you know, it has its, it has its reformation emphasis on the gospel. And then, um, coinciding with events going on, uh, you can think of, um, um, the enlightenment and that kind of thing, coinciding with events going on in the world. Lutheranism, um, as such goes through kind of a rationalistic period, a period of where it was kind of like dryly parsing out all the various doctrines that you have to believe in order to be saved. And understandably so, there's this counter-reaction to this rationalism, as it was called. And this counter-reaction is pietism. It's not, it's not about the nitty-gritty of doctrine. It's about your spiritual life, your internal life. And pietism starts taking on its own kind of weird forms as it rejects the doctrinal forms and it goes into this, which are doctrine kind of external. So pietism very much internal, not your mind, but your heart, not your external, but your internal, not the sacraments and the office of the holy ministry, because those are external, but you and your close little group of friends in your living room around the word of God. Okay, that's that's pietism. Pietism, less looking at Jesus to see if you're saved, more looking at your heart to see if you're saved. <laughs> okay, so um, what happened then? Rationalism, pietism, and then trying to make sanity between those two. That doctrine is important and life is important. But one of the after effects of this in Lutheranism today is this idea that, well, pietism is bad, so piety must be bad. Um, because pietism is bad, any talk of good works is bad. Um, good works is law talk. We're all about the gospel. And so you've no doubt heard these things. And what I would encourage you to do is realize that these are not really good distinctions. They're not really good categories. And they're liable to not make a lot of sense when you finally open the New Testament and read it. What's going to make sense is about the 40-minute sermon that I tried to give you at the start of this class. And why that's going to make sense is because it's coming right out of the New Testament, you see. So we as Lutherans want to again go ad fontes back to the fount, back to the source, which is the scriptures, and relearn the scriptural way of thinking about justification and sanctification because we've gotten far afield as we've gotten driven by these forces of rationalism and pietism and now anti-pietism and all the rest. So we're, we're going back to the source to have our own reformation and renaissance um, to understand good works as organically held in Christ and Him crucified. All right, so that's kind of the, the program and where I'm coming from. All right, any, uh, any opening thoughts you have in regard to Wolf Mueller's observation? Um, that, uh, yes, please. I'm so, thank you for 
everything you've said so far today. Sure. For me, it turned on the light bulb from your Easter sermon about the new creation and walking in the newness with Christ. I felt at that time it was almost dangerously close to where they take the truth into the prosperity gospel. Now you're new with Christ, and so you get all these goodies. But what I'm hearing you say today is you're safe more from the attacks of the devil and the world. You still suffer, but it's the suffering that God has prepared for you that he knows you can handle that will ultimately bring you closer to him. Is that yeah, exactly kind of better right. to think about? Yeah, there's infinite windows into the newness of what God's done in the New Testament. And I, I selected one window for the Easter sermon, how he transforms the day, the week, and the year, and then ultimately death. That was kind of my intent there, focusing on the, the idea of Christ as the new son that governs these things. Um, so, yeah, then what I'm expressing today is just yet a different angle and uh, a different way of looking at it. And while these two may be kind of more central ways of looking at it, I have no doubt in my mind that there is practically infinite n- number of different angles one could take on this reality. Yeah. yeah, so I'm glad, anyway, I'm glad some dots are connecting there. That's fantastic. Okay, were there any other comments or... Uh... All right, we're good. So let's jump over to um, 142 up at the top, where uh, in gigantic and gigantic print, American Christianity, though, is confused. Now, is, he's contrasting that with, if you want to flip back to 144, you can see the statement he's contrasting with. The Bible does not, or excuse me, the Bible does spend significant time talking about the Christian life of love and good works. Uh, Wolf Mueller's right on there. And then American Christianity, though, is confused on the how, the what, and the why of our good works. So this is what we're going to be digging into next week in particular. Let's see what he has to say by way of introduction. Regarding the how, American Christianity is confused about the ongoing battle of the flesh and the spirit. It teaches that we accomplish good works with the strength and freedom of our own will. Regarding the what... There is confusion about Christian vocation and the role of the Ten Commandments in the world and the Christian life. Regarding the why, American Christianity requires good works for the certainty of salvation and even to earn greater rewards in heaven. Um, key word there on earning in a meritorious sense. Um, obviously, when you give a cup of cold water, you by no means lose your reward. I don't think Wolf Miller's critiquing that. I think Wolfmuller's critiquing something like the kind of comment I've heard Rick Warren make of, well, I'm doing as many good works as I can here in this life because I want to be a big shot. I want to be a head honcho in the life which is to come. Something's, something's not good there. Something's a little rotten in Denmark, as they say. Um, yeah, that is, that's very, so like, <laughs> well, well, your good works are rewarded by God. That's a scriptural teaching. Jesus teaches that. Um, not in such a way that you hand God a bill. <laughs> you know, not in such a way that you go, okay, here's what I'm owed. Here's how many uh, good works I did. And uh, um, that's a not, that, that's expressive of a non-Christian attitude. That's an expression of a heart that is not, in fact, converted. Um, what, what bill are any one of us going to present God, <laughs> God with? Zero. It's absolutely antithetical. Uh, we're not going to say, God, you owe me anything other than you've promised eternal life and on the basis of your promise. I desire this. Um, but not that you owe me. And yet, we're not going to be cowed into some kind of opposite error of like, okay, so therefore then good works don't have their reward, which you frequently heard taught. They most certainly do. Scriptures teach us everywhere. And why do the scriptures teach us everywhere? Precisely because of what ails us today, and that is we're all nihilistic and we all think it's meaningless, and the world's gone to such a hell in a handbasket, we think it's all just spitting into the wind. That's the thing. So we get demoralized and depressed, and we think to ourselves, it doesn't matter. And um, that's one of the greatest temptations of of our own time, and why now more than ever we need this teaching of Jesus and his apostles that know, it has meaning. It has reward. It has 
uh, temporal and eternal meaning and reward. And it pleases God, and God looks down, and it's a gracious thing in his sight, and he's well pleased with any attempts we make. That's what we need, because the world and everything we observe tells us, why bother? Uh, Why bother is because even if it has no effect whatsoever, guess who it affects? God who sees it and delights in it. Our Heavenly Father pleases Him. Okay, so we're going to be looking at the uh, the how, the what, and the why of kind of the way that Christianity botches its understanding of good works and what we can do to recover a more biblical understanding of that for, for our sake and for the sake of those in the Holy Christian Church. The Lord be with you.